back to the second episode of Chirp Chats, a product of the Chicago Human Rhythm Project. This is Kate. And I'm Kaylee. We're excited to bring you this week's guest, founder of the Chicago Human Rhythm Project, aka Chirp, tap dancer extraordinaire, and our boss, Lane Alexander. After that, we'll be talking with our interns, Abby and Zoe, about the two articles that they brought in this week. We're going to be talking about dance as a form of post-election protest, and also about a new work by Pioneer Winters. So today we're going to be talking with Lane Alexander. Lane is a teacher, performer, choreographer, producer, advocate, and community organizer. He has led the Chicago Human Rhythm Project for 30 years, during which time Chirp became the first year-round presenting institution in the U.S., dedicated to American tap and percussive dance. He helped design and direct Chirp's many programs, including the oldest tap festival in America, Rhythm World, the Citywide Festival Stomping Grounds, and the arts incubator, the American Rhythm Center. Lane directed the first full-length tap concert on a main stage at the Kennedy Center and the Emmy-nominated PBS ITVS WTTW documentary Juba. He has performed Wharton Goods Tap Dance Concerto at Carnegie Hall and the Royal Festival Hall with the London Philharmonic, among many others, and toured internationally with the National Tap Dance Company of Canada. Lane loves to teach and continues to teach weekly classes online to beginner and intermediate adults. He has so many accomplishments, we can't name them all, and we're excited to talk to him. Welcome, Lane. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Kaylee. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, Lane. Yeah, I think our first kind of question we have for you is we'd love for you to start at the beginning and tell us a little bit about how Trip was conceived and how it's kind of evolved through the years. I know it's a very different organization than it was in the 80s, and so I'd love if you could, you know, do a quick little intro to that. Sure. Well, the the Human Rhythm Project uh, actually started as a men's duet company with a different name. It was, at the time, it was Alexander Michaels' Future Movement, me being Alexander, and Kelly Michaels was the Michaels. And Future Movement was the idea that we could combine elements of contemporary dance and American tap dance to create hybrid works that uh, included elements of both. And so we started that in 1988. And then in 1990, um, we decided as a part of our year-round season that AMFM would begin to produce uh, a tap dance festival, which was named the Human Rhythm Project. And um, so that's how the Human Rhythm Project began. It was as an event produced by Alexander Michaels' Future Movement. And then the co-founder, Kelly Michaels, passed away in 1995 from AIDS. And after he passed away, the repertory company faded away. There was energy around the duet company. We didn't decide to, to go on with that. But the festival was growing and growing and growing. So that became really the organization. And eventually we just assumed that name and put AMFM to bed. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this kind of hybrid fusion of tap and contemporary dance and other kind of percussive artworks. I think a lot of times people think of tap as a very kind of solitary dance form that isn't as fusiony with other things. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your inspiration there and kind of how you brought a bigger picture of tap in these kind of festivals. 
tap dance usually evokes a very strong image in people's minds when you say tap dance. And very often, even to this day, as much amazing new work that's being done, very often the images that are evoked are from bygone eras of either the golden age of movie musicals or a Broadway show like 42nd Street or sort of a vaudeville idea of very deep roots in the entertainment culture. But tap, American tap dance, like most percussive dance forms, actually have their roots in sacred practice and, and ritual. Most first communities all had some form of percussive dance where stomping the earth either to celebrate a birth or the bringing in of the crops or the preparation for war or just a communal celebration were parts of all of these first communities. And so the roots go back thousands of years, which American tap dancers sometimes, you know, when you say tap dance, you don't think about that, <laughs> right? Um, so much time has passed between the beginning and where we are today that the root, the real connection has been lost. So it's evolved for thousands of years and it continues to evolve. And that means um, newer dance forms like contemporary dance are elements of contemporary dance are being not just grafted on it as if something, you know, external, but actually internalized by dancers who've studied more than a single form. And so it comes out in a new way to varying degrees of success, of course. Some people like Fred Strickler, I think, uh, were brilliant. You couldn't see where the tap began and the contemporary left off. It really was a, a beautiful organic integration of the two forms. And uh, it doesn't always end up that way. Sometimes the, the attempt to, to integrate the two is not as successful. But there are a lot of people now who who do integrate different forms and very successfully. But there's also different genres within the tap family, um, whether it's super complex syncopation and rhythmic composition, as opposed to more spatially oriented, less rhythmically complex theatrical. Um, there, and these are traditions that also go each go back, you know, hundreds of years. And continue. Of course, these days, everything cross-pollinates each other. And so actually, the lines between those genres are actually getting less clear because the, each form is learning from the other. And so you'll see elements of the entertainment in the hardcore rhythm tap, and you'll see much more complex rhythm tap in what used to be simpler rhythms in theatrical tap. So it's been exciting to see the evolution even over just the last 30 years, where what you said also in your question, very often tap dance is thought of as the art of the soloist. And to a large extent, those icons of, of tap were either soloists or duos like either Fred Astaire or the Nicholas Brothers. You don't think of Alvin Ailey or the American Ballet Theater. There are no parallel institutions for tap yet with that kind of heft and size and financial power like those companies have for tap. So that the idea still is mostly of the soloist or the, the small group. Yeah, very cool. How do you, as an artist and choreographer, connect back to kind of these roots and sacred movement that you're talking about? 
with tap um, and also try to kind of push the envelope of what tap can be? Well, for me, it's not an intentional, it's not that I'm trying to do that. What I'm, as an artist, as an individual artist, what I do mostly is uh, emotional, psychological response to what I'm hearing. So I'll improvise over and over and over and over again. When I'm creating a choreography, I'll improvise over and over and over and over again to a particular piece of music and save the fragments of improvisation that were correct and build upon those. And for me, my particular musical affinity happens to be to music by composers like Johann Sebastian Bach. And, you know, he composed uh, at the Thomaskirche, which was a church in Leipzig, Germany. He was writing religious music for the glory of God. And so when I hear his music, I kind of hear the voice of God in what he's written. And it's a little bit of a meditation for me to dance to his music, whether it's slow or fast. And so I actually was very fortunate to be able to travel to Leipzig uh, to teach there. And while I was there, I got to visit Tomas Kircha, where he was the Kapellmeister for a good portion of his career, and to stand in the spots where he stood and <laughs> to ask him to inspire, you know, if there's any any atom of his essence left in this space, please deliver it to me now so I can take it back to the studio. And so um, I, I return to that, that space mentally as often as I can when I'm making work and just try to, like, invoke his his presence but also that idea that the music that appeals to me is is sacred in in nature and so that's primarily my response to music so you've kind of touched on one moment but i was wondering if you could talk more about some of the highlights of your career um things that have really influenced your your trajectory well a couple come to mind right away one working with uh william known as Bill Orlowski, with the National Tap Dance Company of Canada. And he started a repertory company even before most of the American tap repertory companies, like the Tap Dance Orchestra in New York that was founded by Brenda Buffalino or Jazz Tap Ensemble in Los Angeles. Bill actually preceded their work and um, in Canada, in Toronto. And um, I got to, to dance with them in the mid-80s and the late-80s. I moved to Toronto for a couple of years and got to learn so much from him. And he also had a, a, a strong affinity to, to classical music, uh, but he also did some really, what you know, I'll say avant-garde, some really edgy stuff as well. One of his mentors was a man named Paul Draper, um, who I got to work with just at the end of his of his life and his career and learned some new choreography that he was making, which was really impactful on me, not only because of the work that he did, but because of his personal experience of having been identified as a communist in the 19, um, early 1950s and, and being driven from the United States. There were false allegations and it pretty much ruined his career and he fled uh, to Canada. He came back later, but that was very much a part of his story that I, that I learned from about not ever giving up and continuing forward regardless of what was going on around you. And he found a way, he found a way. So dancing for Bill and everything that that 
all of the opportunities around that touring internationally and learning new vocabulary and new concepts. But then I would also say one of the most pivotal moments, I had gotten a very small grant from the Department of Cultural Affairs for the city of Chicago. It was like a $1,200 individual artist grant that allowed me to go to Portland, Oregon to attend an international tap dance festival in 1986. And there were a lot of masters there that I wasn't that familiar with their work. Uh, LaVon Robinson from Philadelphia and uh, Honey Coles, uh, Diane Walker, Sam Weber, um, Eddie Brown. I mean, there were just Steve Condos, so many. And that was my really my first introduction to what was then called Rhythm Tap. And that was the moment that I realized I would never know how to tap dance because it was such an infinite form. Um, the the breadth and depth of the form really was revealed to me in, in Portland at that festival. But uh, the thing that it made me, and again, this was in 1986, I was like, why do I have to go to the West Coast or anywhere? Why can't we get, why can't we do this in Chicago? I, let's do one, let's do a festival like this in Chicago. It took a few years to do it, but in 1990, you know, we did. And um, so that was one of the turning points, I guess, in my life as, as an artist in my career was the desire to, to build a platform like that in Chicago for the Chicago tap dance community, because we didn't have anything like that at that time. It was, it was all contemporary dance and all ballet. There were tap dancers here, but there was, there was no platform for tap dance. So yeah, I would say those were, would be two of the, the big, big moments. Uh, you were just speaking a little bit about, you know, some of the people who have impacted you, maybe mentored you throughout your career. And I was wondering if that's ever a role that you step into yourself, especially now a little bit later in your career, whether as an individual artist or through Chirp. I think so. And um, some people have come to me at different times to to ask for advice and guidance but in different ways, not always artistic. Sometimes it's in, in the business world, um, that the business side of managing a nonprofit, sometimes artistically, but just as often in my case for the, uh, the business development knowledge that I've accumulated sort of incidentally to, to all of this because arts management was nothing that I ever actually studied except through practical application that's otherwise known as trial and error. <laughs> yeah. Could you speak on kind of learning business development on the fly a little bit? Well, sure. And I will mention Kelly again, Kelly Michaels, because he, at the, before he moved to back to Chicago, he was from Chicago and he was dancing for a contemporary company in uh, state uh, Pennsylvania. And um, he was helping to manage this company. And so he knew all the ins and outs of, how do you file a form to create a 501c3 non-for-profit and write articles of incorporation and bylaws and form a board of directors? And he had written grants before. So I learned all of those things from him. And then when he passed, the foundation was already pretty much in place. So we just built on the foundation that he had laid for us. And it's been, it really has been an eye-opening experience. It's, I would say the nonprofit corporate model is not the most efficient 
model. Um, it's not the most efficient business model, and I understand why it's designed the way it is for you know to protect people's the gifts that they've made to not to charities to make sure that they're used appropriately and for the purpose that they've been given. But it's a it's a really complex business model, and I think that um, it's something that needs to probably evolve uh, <laughs> um, to make it more efficient and less bureau bureaucratic so that a higher percentage of the money that's devoted to, to nonprofits can actually go to the actual work and not the management of the work. All the, one of the main things that I've learned running a nonprofit is that people really want to help. People want to get involved and um, Almost every single person that I know is involved in some good work in their community. And it's just an amazing thing to, to see all of the goodwill that goes into all the selfless work and time and effort that goes into all of the nonprofits around Chicago and the world. It's, it's really inspiring. I definitely agree. I really have enjoyed learning about the nonprofit art culture sector here in Chicago and um, kind of going off of what you were talking about, like running a nonprofit and learning all of the ins and outs with that. How did, was it like trying to continue your practice as an artist, but also like creating this, this organization? Well, I would say, and again, you know, very, it's so funny. You, you hear this, sometimes people look back at their lives and they go, well, if I had to do it all over again, what would I change? And so very often when you're, you're really in the flow, sometimes you're not as intentional as you think you're being because you're so busy doing stuff that you may not be as aware of the, lo the longer term perspective. So I think if I had it to do over again, I might have spent a little bit less time writing grants and maybe a little bit more time uh, dancing and uh, creating. That's selfish, I know, but I gradually over the last 30 years, I spent less and less and less time in my tap shoes, in my shoes, in the studio, and more and more and more time in front of a computer. And... I, I don't regret that, but um, I'm actually at this point going back the other way. I'm spending more time in my shoes and loving loving every minute of it. I still uh, love to, to improvise and create new work, and apparently I still have so, a few things to say because there's no shortage of, of rhythm that comes out of my feet when I put my shoes on. I'm glad to hear like you were able to like, come back to, to what brought you here in the first place. Kind of pivoting a little bit, I was wondering about how the organization has responded to the current moment we see ourselves in and how you see CHIRP and ARC going forward as we're kind of working our way through this pandemic. Yeah, that's that's another great question, because to me, it's the moment that I feel most engaged in is the social justice movement. The pandemic is something completely other, almost otherworldly and almost surreal in its impact on the way we live right now. The social justice movement is something that, that the Human Rhythm Project, that was the Human Rhythm Project. One of the main reasons we started the Human Rhythm Project was to give voice to 
the people of rhythm, the many dance traditions that you couldn't then and can barely find now in academia or at the highest levels of institutional development. And it's been a struggle for all 30 years to continue to sort of beat that same drum and say, there's more to dance. And this is without any ill will uh, toward uh, French ballet or German contemporary dance. To the contrary, they're gorgeous human expressions of movement, and they deserve absolutely every bit of support that they, they get. But what's happened over the last century is that what was the natural affinity of the majority population of the United States, which were majority European, when you and I'll just use one example. Say there's a company that has a $22 million a year annual budget, which there there are companies. There's there are dance companies in New York that have an annual operating budget of $150 million. And then you'll take a small tap dance company that might have an annual operating budget of $150,000. Okay, well, the difference between $22 million a year and $150,000 a year, every year that that adds up, the gap between those two institutions just gets wider and wider and wider and wider. And so I hadn't seen a whole lot of movement to close that gap for the first 20 some odd years of the Human Rhythm Project. And, and I was astonished, really, that... It seems so obvious to me that the level of investment in some dance forms was just so spectacularly higher than in others out of no other reason than it's just always been that way. Well, that's that's just that's normal. That's the way we do it. It's like, well, that's not normal. <laughs> we have to change that. And so to see almost universal recognition of that imbalance at this moment in time is gratifying. You know, I feel like I've been leaning up against that door for a very long time, sometimes pounding on that door, sometimes pulling out an axe to chop that door down. I've lost a lot of, no, I wouldn't say I've lost friends, but I've strained many relationships over the years, pressing this point home and saying, look, you're not, I'm not saying that you're a bad person. I'm saying, because most of the, 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 the funding that goes on in this country is through individuals, not through foundations. We all think the foundations provide all the money and the government provides all the money. Most donations come from individuals. And of course, they give to those things for which they have affinity. So it's a very delicate conversation to go to somebody who loves ballet. It's their right to love ballet and it's their right to give their money to those things which they love, right? But to ask them, can you can you allocate some portion of that to this other thing that may not be at the top of your affinity list that because we were trying to rebuild or reset the balance point. Um, and I just feel almost elated that when I do see so much conversation about the resetting of the balance point right now, it's, it was, it was why we started 30 years ago was to to provide that platform and to make those critical initial investments in art forms that were not being supported. So it's very, it's gratifying. It's also very stressful because um, there's a lot of emotion around it. And um, we're still trying to do our, to do our part in the community to bring that, that new reality into, uh, 
into into focus beyond like you know trying to narrow that kind of financial investment gap how else do you see as a way to kind of make it so that these other art forms are uplifted in a way similar to ballet modern dance etc yeah that's a that's a very long-term prospect because again that gap that has evolved over you know a hundred or more years and when i'm talking about you know the dance ecology the way it's funded over the last hundred years that those the gaps are just so huge and i go back to economic justice because i to to me that's where my passion lies to a large extent is rebalancing the economic balance point um and so leveraging investment over the long term because i've been in this business and it is a business for enough years to have seen trends come and go and be replaced by the next thing that's the most important for the next three to five years this problem isn't going to be solved in three to five years this is a 10 20 30 40 year 50 years more of resetting the balance point not by tearing anybody down, not by tearing anything down, by investing in a different way um, and building new things, but sustained investment. These new institutions that are going to grow are going to need sustained investment over half a century, not for two years, not for three years, for 50 years to really reset the, the culture. And it's hard to maintain focus for that for that long. Priorities shift constantly, right? I want to try to get that message across about stay focused, keep your eye on that very long term, that, that horizon that's not so close yet. We have a long way. We've come a long way. We have a long way to go. Yeah, I guess it, it kind of ties back into what you were saying towards the end, but... Um, I know CHIRP is going through a lot of transition right now um, with the five-year strategic plan. And to end, I was wondering if you could talk about where you see CHIRP going in the next few years. Um, what kind of collaborations do you think are going to happen in the future? And just A lot of what our strategic plan was about, and this is one of those sort of non-sexy parts of strategic planning and not-for-profit management, but a lot of this particular strategic plan was not so program-focused as it was on infrastructure development, like aligning financial planning with artistic planning and uh, board development and um, revenue generation and uh, leadership transition, which is a which may be the, the the biggest item on the agenda. So we wrote the plan at the end of 2018 and started to implement it at the beginning of 2019. And actually, it was a great moment for us to be focused on. Again, this is sort of laying a new foundation for for future growth um, because in, while we haven't been able to do as intensive programs as we normally do, that's a perfect time to work on other stuff. And so the timing of the pandemic, I mean, it actually sort of aligned with the kind of work that we were doing with our strategic plan, which was foundation laying. The plan didn't say, okay, let's open six more schools starting in April of 2020, which of course would have been, a, you know, a complete disaster. Or let's launch, let's expand the festival by 12 weeks or anything like that. So um, 
having laid a new foundation and being in the process of identifying new leadership, it'll really be up to the new leadership to sort of set new directions and to um, to sort of define those next steps, which I'm very excited about. I'm going to continue to work um, on the um, institutional development side to make sure that the organization has the resources that it needs to fulfill the dreams and aspirations of new leaders um, and to pass the torch to a, a new generation and to give them maybe a lot of the things that we didn't have when we were first getting started so that they'll start from a much higher place than when we started and uh, hopefully giving them the tools that they need to uh, take it much further than than we were ever able to do. Well, that's great. I'm excited to see see what happens with the organization. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Wayne, for talking with us um, today. Thank you both. This week, we have the interns talking about two pretty interesting articles. So if someone would like to get us started. Um, I'm Abby Mayhew, and this week I found uh, an article from uh, Dance Magazine, and it's entitled Post-Election Dancing Erupts in Streets Throughout the Nation by uh, Madeline Schrock um, on November 9th of 2020. And it includes like a bunch of postings from Twitter and various like social media on Facebook about how dance was used as a form of celebration after the announcement of Biden-Harris winning uh, presidential election of 2020. And I don't know, I thought it was a cool way to think of dance. Um, I know last week we kind of talked about how it's like a, a something for health and something for uh, mental stability and like how the health benefits of dancing. And uh, I realized that we didn't quite include just the love of dance. And so I think that's really a really interesting concept because dancers, especially, I know myself, I'm horribly guilty of this, that I can get in uh, phases where I think of dance as like getting as training and as getting stronger and as getting more like technique based and as, you know, building my craft, which is all great things to think about. Um, but what about just like the love of dance as celebration or as protest? And um, so I thought that was a really cool way of connecting the election to just like a love of dance and for like, what do you do when you're really happy? What do you do when you just want to go to a club and be with your friends? You know, it's, it involves dancing. Yeah, I think it's super interesting looking at this kind of stuff, especially the kind of images of people in crowds, both socially distant and not, um, just about how much less of an opportunity pretty much everybody has right now to dance and dance with other people. Um, and so thinking about that as a very specific form of expression, which, you know, maybe we haven't had much cause or reason to do so recently. So I thought that was very cool especially looking at all of those kind of like group dances and this kind of collective spirit that you can't really find that much these days. There's a lot of like really cool dance pieces that have been created as a form of protest too. So it's like, not only is it, it it's, I, I love the phrase, just a form of expression because there's so many ways to take that in however it is, including technique and, and culture and all that different stuff. But um that's what like a lot of dance was based off of is just the the need for expression. And when you have like, and they always say like in musical theater, you know, what do you do when you have nothing else to say? You sing and you dance. 
So I, that's kind of where my brain, where my brain went with that is that like, there's literally no other way to express, you know, the relief or the happiness or uh, just any type of emotion, but dancing in the street. Yeah. I really liked how the article showcased a lot of different, like diverse, culturally diverse types of dances. Um, like they had a lot of different Native American style dances. And then they had like the YMCA or the Cupid Shuffle. And, and even though all these dances are so different, like there's still this sense of like collectivity and solidarity. And yeah, I just thought that was really exciting to see. I don't know about you guys, I jam to the Cupid Shuffle. <laughs> Like that was my middle school dance jam. <laughs> and I brought all my friends to the dance floor, you know, the, you know the vibes and it's something that everybody knows too. It's like, so it's that way. I think we talked about this a little bit too, is that like dance is such a universal language, like the Cupid Shuffle or the YMCA or like, you know, such like cultural staples that just everyone can join along to. Or I think like a huge thing was Party in the USA was like a huge thing played. Um, and it was like, I don't know. I find that to be just a, like such a such a cultural aspect that no one really thinks about. But you know, "Party in the USA" is a song that everybody knows and everybody can jam to. Mm-hmm. Um, this article notes a couple times the way that a lot of these kind of cultural touchstone dances that you're talking about, like how their meanings have super duper shifted in the past couple of months. Like talking about YMCA specifically as you know the song that Trump always dances to, or the Cupid Shuffle having some other, you know, sort of resonances with some of the protests in June, July. So I think it's interesting how it's like, yes, you know, probably these are fairly easy dances to learn and a lot of people know them from growing up, but also there are these different new meanings that can be imbued in the YMCA maybe, so that doing it as a form of protest or a form of whatever when, um, I don't know if the village people would have thought that that's what they were doing when they made the song. Uh, it brought me back to like my love for dance and how everyone in the community just loves to dance. Like, you know, I feel like we don't really talk about that aspect of it so much. It's like, oh, the classes or the experience you have or like where you want to go with your dance. But like, what about when you just love music and you love to dance? And this was such a genuine reaction to that too. Um, no one thought about, oh, it, like, am I doing this right? Or like, is my toe pointed? You know, they were just dancing in the street because let's dance in the street. It's a good day. So we should dance in the street. Okay. Thank you so much for bringing that article in. So now we're going to move on to Zoe's article. Hi, I'm Zoe. I'm the other intern. And I also found an article from dancemagazine.com. And this one is called Pioneer Winter's New Project Mimes the Experiences of Underrepresented Queer People. It was written by Guillermo Perez and it was written on November 11th, 2020. So this is about the Pioneer Winter Collective. Pioneer Winter is the director choreographer and they were commissioned by the Adrian Arsh Center for Performing Arts to develop a piece based on LGBTQ plus experiences called Birds of Paradise. Pioneer Winter's um, is the artist in residence and has been for the past two years. Um, and this article talks about kind of an interview that they did with Pioneer, um, getting some inner perspectives on this new work of art. So he mentioned that at first the piece was going to be about queer history or like he called it the great moments, um, like these, these super well-known moments in history that we all look up to. 
but now he decided that it's going to be about the self-talk before and kind of the preparation and like the mental headspace that you go to and what builds up to this great moment or this historic moment that we all see. It also talks about how their company is super serious about allied bodies. And when they say that, they mean it. They um, it require anti-racism resources to be explored by all of their collaborators because they want to represent all communities, all body types, all shapes, sizes, etc. And also they talked about the struggles of moving to the virtual world. One of the solutions that they found is that they're going to use the choreo portraits of each collaborator to insert into the piece. Um, so it'll be like the collective body of work and then it'll be these like single shots on each of the collaborators. And Pioneer, I thought this was really cool because Pioneer said that he learned a lot about leadership and that especially during these times as a leader, sometimes it's okay not to be okay, but to embrace that and inspire the people around you by being honest and open. Very cool. Yeah, a lot of interesting stuff going on there. I was really interested in in the part where he's talking about the kind of relationship between, you know, anti-racism and queer representation and stuff in dance and kind of recentering dance as this very political thing, um, which I thought was cool that it's, you know, not just having different types of people in the room together, but that there's also conscious, you know, what sort of, what sort of reading do you need to do, right? Like there's other stuff there. And I think that kind of connects to the conversations we had last week about how do you make representation that isn't superficial? How do you actually include people in things and make it so that all bodies can be actually involved in the dance world? Yeah, I thought it was cool that they do have the bodies in the room, but also that they're doing their homework and that they're really actively, they're not just saying, oh, we, we are allied bodies, you know, this is what we stand for. They're actively doing the work that needs to be done to fix all of the just isms in the world and systemic racism. And so I really appreciate them as a company for doing that work. I think it's very relevant. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting in the article when I was talking about dance and the way it can represent rage and exaltation and just like this dichotomy of, of emotions, but how movement like encompasses so many, so many things at once. And that was something like I, as someone who isn't really active in the dance community, like learning about that, I thought was really interesting because like when I watch dance performances, I only see it very like superficially at first, just for like, what are they doing? How does it connect to the music? But then, thinking about the layers of like happiness and sadness and even connecting it back to the other article, like protest and celebration, something that might not go together initially, but yeah, I just thought that was really interesting how, how layered movement can be. Yeah, no, I think it's really cool that there is this really pretty happy side of dance where we're doing all these graceful movements, but then there's also like work pieces of work like this that are really trying to get to the heart and the raw emotion and sometimes show you that rage or something that's not very pretty because they're trying to represent something real. Yeah, I think it's, there's some interesting connections here between this article and the one that Abby brought in, especially when we're talking about what does it mean to take up space? What does it mean to move in a space? What does it mean to move your body and feel the kind of emotions that you're having in a very specific way, whether like spur of the moment, I'm happy about something or, you know, trying to tap into emotions like anger and. And I know Pioneer uh, 
brought up going to some of the protests over the summer and, you know, feeling this this taking up of space as a group and this one entity being. Um, and he said that they would run into another group and then just kind of like conform into one. And everybody was just really sharing that energy and sharing that space and, you know, representing in this larger manner what they're trying to accomplish. I think it also says something about dance as education and so you kind of talked about this before that like it's important to be educated in order to create the art and then using that art as education to others so i thought that was a really cool like cycle almost and how we can continue to better ourselves through the art that we make or through the art that we see and that the art that we like digest and then you can also think about it it's very full circle you can also think about it in the um sense that the Adrian Art Center is also trying to educate their audience by commissioning a piece like this. So props to them. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Zoe. And thank you, Abby, for bringing some very timely and interesting articles to us this week. Look forward to talking to you in two weeks time. Yeah, thanks so much for tuning in to this second full episode of Chirp Chat. Uh, stay tuned for our third episode coming out in two weeks for more engaging conversation. Next episode is going to be Zoe and Abby's last on the show, so you will want to make sure not to miss that. You can find both the American Rhythm Center and Chicago Human Rhythm Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and also online at chicagotap.org. Our intro music is Common Ground by Airtone.